Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding expectations, simplifying lives, and establishing legacies that last for generations. Leverage their exclusive network of experts to help achieve your personal and professional financial goals. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect to a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Tuesday, June 29th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. Why exactly were McDonald's french fries so good back in the day? Why did they change? And can the secret original recipe be recreated? Plus, a new sort of post-post-punk subgenre is emerging in the post-Brexit United Kingdom. And a completely pointless but wonderful website I discovered last week. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Everyone's got a favorite french fry. I'm a pretty big fan of Sonic's french fries. I think they're a good classic staple, not too greasy, hold up pretty well structurally. Burger Kings aren't bad either, and of course you can't go wrong with a waffle fry on occasion. My all-time favorite shoestring fries used to be from Bear Burger, an East Coast kind of organic burger chain, but they changed them about eight years ago, and I have never forgiven them. Because that's the thing, when you find your favorite fries, fries so good that nowhere else comes close, it's gut-wrenching when that place changes the recipe. Which is why, 31 years later, people still bemoan the change to McDonald's original french fry recipe. Now, I was only two months old when the first big change happened, sorry, so I can't say that I ever tried the old fries, but I've heard the passion and the reverence with which they're spoken. They were allegedly crispier, lasted longer, and had a bolder taste compared to their modern-day counterparts. So what happened to them, and why were they so good to start with? Last winter, Luke Fader over at Atlas Obscura went on a french fry odyssey to uncover and recreate the original recipe, and shared some fascinating bits of the fry's history along the way. So, McDonald's was founded in San Bernardino, California in 1940 by brothers Richard and Maurice McDonald. And while a lot of what they did built on methods pioneered by White Castle, often credited as being the first fast food restaurant, one thing they were doing that a lot of other fast food places weren't was making french fries. Quoting Atlas Obscura, According to Adam Chandler, the author of Drive Through Dreams, A Journey Through the Heart of America's Fast Food Kingdom, World War I soldiers returning to the United States from France and Belgium ushered these exotic fried potato strings into the American culinary consciousness. But Chandler says that fries were too labor-intensive and difficult to execute in a consistent commercial manner. While most burger joints may do with potato chips, the McDonald brothers had a secret, he says. They used their desert setting to their advantage curing potatoes for several days in the desert air before processing them. They had this extra crispness to them that made them better than any fry you'd ever had. 
end quote. And beyond curing potatoes in the desert air, Ben Stacks, who was an employee at the original location from 1954 to 1960, shared this about how the fries were made. Quoting again, Locally sourced Idaho russet potatoes were peeled, chopped, and rinsed of excess starch in a shed behind the restaurant. The prepared shoestrings sat in cold water until about an hour before frying, at which point they were drained and dried before being tossed into a hot vat of 100% beef fat. Cook em, salt em, sell em, says Stacks, end quote. The fries were what caught the attention of Ray Kroc, the man who would go on to buy McDonald's from the brothers and turn it into the global empire it is today. But back then, he was just a milkshake machine salesman who visited the San Bernardino store to see for himself why the milkshake machines there wore out so fast. And the answer? Because the milkshakes, too, were so popular that people would line up down the block to get one and the machines never got a break. Turns out McDonald's has always had an issue keeping up with their milkshake machines. But anyways, it was the fries that really caught Croc's attention on that visit. They were so unique and well done that he knew the success of the company would depend on them. So after buying the franchising rights to McDonald's in 1955, he set about figuring out how to scale up the brothers' trick of curing the potatoes in the desert, especially in non-desert climates. Quoting again, as Malcolm Gladwell reported in The New Yorker in 2001, Croc armed fieldmen with hydrometers to ensure the potatoes met ideal water content and solidity levels, developed his own potato curing method that didn't require a desert, and even hired an engineer from Motorola to design a potato computer that calibrated fry oil temperature to deliver consistently cooked fries. He tinkered with the frying oil as well, developing a secretive, cost-saving mixture of beef tallow and vegetable oil termed Formula 47 after the original 40-cent McDonald's meal. End quote. And that Formula 47 and other details of the recipe remain unknown. Fader spoke to various McDonald's representatives, archivists, and did a bunch of digging to crack the mystery, but everyone's lips were sealed. Which made sense at the time. They didn't want their growing number of competitors to copy them, but that beef tallow recipe hasn't been in use since 1990. So why are they still so secretive? And why did they change the recipe? Now, you may remember the broad strokes about the beef tallow not being healthy, and that's basically it. McDonald's became one of the food companies targeted by Phil Sokoloff. Sokoloff was a wealthy construction supply salesman who, after suffering a heart attack at age 43, devoted the rest of his life and his riches to fighting the fatty foods that led to his heart attack. After a very public debate with McDonald's senior vice president Dick Starman on Good Morning America in 1990, Sokoloff's pressure on the company finally paid off and they quietly made a few changes, including removing the beef tallow from their french fries. Fader notes that while Sokoloff's public smear campaign certainly had an effect, there was a changing of the tides broadly affecting all fast food companies at the time. The diet era was entering its peak, and every restaurant and food company was trying, and mostly failing, to appeal to consumers with healthier options. But slightly ironically, and quite unfortunately, taking the beef tallow out of the fry recipe was not a net positive for health. Quoting again, Exchanging beef tallow for pure vegetable oil in high-temperature frying introduced consumers to a different and arguably worse dietary threat than saturated fats. 
trans fats, which as we now know are a major cause of cardiovascular disease, digestive issues, and weight gain. Despite the best intentions, Sokoloff ultimately made a bad problem worse, one that McDonald's has spent decades trying to fix. They've bounced new ingredients in and out of their frying oil to reduce the levels of trans fat, claiming today to have essentially eliminated them from their fries. What we're left with is a distant echo of the famed original fry. According to their website, McDonald's fries are now cooked in a mixture of soybean and canola oil. This recipe ultimately leaves their fries with a flat, beany flavor that lacks the salty crunch that made them famous. Their suppliers add hydrolyzed wheat and hydrolyzed milk, whose meaty-tasting amino acids impart a natural beef flavor upon their par-fry oil, but it's not the same. If modern McDonald's fries aren't eaten immediately, they soften into a mealy texture that settles on the palate like wet dust. End quote. But if you, like Fader, want to sample those delicious original beef tallow french fries, you're in luck. Fader managed to unearth a 33-page PDF of original McDonald's recipes used in the 50s through the 70s written by an anonymous manager of a franchise location back in the day. And it doesn't just include highly detailed first-person instructions for recreating the french fries, it also has general cooking tips, background info on their dipping sauces, and recipes for the Egg McMuffin, Big Mac, and even the McRib. It's a gold mine. Recreating the recipes isn't the easiest task in the world, especially if you aren't super familiar with various cooking skills, but it can be done. Fader successfully recreated the original fries for this article and says they were everything he dreamed of and more. So if you miss those old fries or want to make an out-of-season McRib, now you can. Link is in the show notes. And one last little fun fact I learned while researching today, Roy Kroc, the man ultimately responsible for McDonald's spreading all around the world, served as a Red Cross ambulance driver at the very end of World War I. He was only 15 and lied about his age to enlist, and then the armistice was signed just before he was about to ship out to France, so he never quite served. He did make it through training in Connecticut, though, alongside another teenager who had also lied about his age to join the Red Cross, who apparently just wasn't checking things too closely, and that young man just happened to be Walt Disney. Yeah, the two men who would become responsible for two of the biggest companies and most recognizable symbols in the world, the Golden Arches and Mickey Mouse, trained together to become ambulance drivers in World War I when they were just kids. Wild how that works out. Imagine if your favorite casino came with an undo button. That's exactly what you get with FanDuel Casino's Play It Again. Get up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. Play your favorite table games in hundreds of slots for real cash. And see for yourself why FanDuel Casino is the number one rated online casino app. Explore daily and weekly promotions. Play with live dealers. And if you ever have a question, our best-in-class customer support team is here to help 24-7. Sign up for FanDuel Casino at FanDuel.com PA3 today and play it again with up to $1,000 back if you're down after your first day. 21 plus and present in Pennsylvania. Must not have previously placed any wager on FanDuel Sportsbook, FanDuel Casino, Betfair Casino, Mohegan Sun Casino, or Stardust Casino. Refund issued as non-withdrawable casino online site credit that expires seven days after receipt. Restrictions apply. See full terms at FanDuel.com casino. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit FanDuel.com RG. As political tensions grew in the U.S. around 2016, a lot of niche bands that I like emerged from retirement to record new, overtly political albums and started touring again. Something kind of shifted inside of them, and they felt an impassioned calling to write music again. 
This happened a bit during lockdown, too. You know, we saw a handful of artists returning to old vibes, reuniting with former bandmates, or trying out new genres. Most recently, I shared Danny Elfman's new punk rock album that he wrote entirely in lockdown without meaning to. Now, writer Austin Kleon turned me on to what NPR is calling a new wave of post-Brexit, post-punk happening in the UK. The bands who meet this hard-to-pin-down, not-yet-formally-labeled genre include Squid, Dry Cleaning, Legs, Fontaine's DC, Shame, Sleaford Mods, Yard Act, and several more. And Matthew Perpetua, writing in NPR, says they've been releasing the most exciting debut albums of the year so far. He feels like something is definitely happening here. And what ties them all together is that sort of post-punk, maybe post-rock vibe, lots of talk singing, and all having emerged around the same time in the UK, starting around 2018 for the earliest ones. Quoting NPR, There's no getting around how much of this music is a direct response to the social dynamics of post-Brexit England, whether it's written into the background of the emotional drama of repressed lust in Dry Cleaning's song Strong Feelings, or manifests as a brutal caricature of a well-to-do pro-leave voter in Yardak's song Fixer Upper. The politics aren't always foregrounded, but there's an unmistakable feeling of shame, disappointment, and pessimism about Britain's future permeating all of this music, end quote. Perpetua hears influences from indie and alternative artists going back to the 60s, as well as a bit of trap and drill, even hints of Franz Ferdinand in some of them. But as for the punk side of it, as well as the new generation's take on post-post-punk, I guess, I think this description hits on it the best, quote, The band Black Country New Roads music feels emotionally fraught, but some of the most powerful moments on the album are essentially dark punchlines, like when Wood bellows, I'm more than adequate, leave my daddy's job out of this, in a theatrically anguished tone at the end of the song Sunglasses. The cringe humor sprinkled throughout the album for the first time is funny, but it gestures toward an unspoken feeling that every aspect of modern life is at least a little embarrassing. End quote. Blunt, dark humor is certainly a hallmark of the original punk bands, and I don't know anything more Gen Z than the self-aware acknowledgement that everything is cringe. Or the description of Florence Shaw, lead singer of Dry Cleaning, as, quote, a dry deadpan that makes her sound alternately bored and mortified by her surroundings, end quote. Shaw does a lot of that speak singing, but keeps the deadpan. Other bands like Squid grow into veritable scream singing, which Perpetual points out comes across maybe even more jarring and interesting than in the 80s and 90s, since most indie bands have kept so quiet for the last decade. Here's a taste of that sound in Squid's song Narrator off their new album Bright Green Field. And for an example of some of the political vibes at play in some of the band's music, here's a sample from On Killing a Swan Blues by Legs. If I was an American, my experience 
horses, they would have shaped me. But because I am British, they only make me tired. Is society really at risk? The elders seem to think so. Growing ever fearful of the adolescents, straying against the personal limit. We should tie them down, flagellate them, consign them to apprenticeships, or better send them off to war. Carve their bodies in a something Tying those two examples together, here's more from Perpetua and NPR, quote, The post-punk era echoing anew makes a lot of sense in this moment. If the original post-punk bands of the early 1980s grew from the disillusionment and alienation of Margaret Thatcher's austere government and the Troubles, it's only logical that a similar set of aesthetics would be useful in responding to the cultural identity crisis brought on by Brexit. The combination of jagged, jerky music and wry monologues simultaneously express a need for exercising raw anger, as well as working through more nuanced anxieties. And though Squid may be the most extreme of this new crop of bands, if there's anything uniting them all beyond the superficial element of spoken word vocals, it's an emphasis on the physicality of rock music. The energy of these songs feels startling in the context of the past 10 to 15 years of indie rock, many corners of which have receded into a low-energy malaise of gentle depression and an internalized suspicion that rock might have run its course, end quote. As Perpetua acknowledges, it's very strange and sometimes reductive to try to coin a new genre, but it does feel like a new sub-genre is emerging here around all of these bands, and label or not, it's cool to see this kind of shift happening. So if you want to listen more to any of these bands, the NPR article in the show notes lists about 10 of them and links out to a few of their music videos. My favorites so far are Squid, Dry Cleaning, and Black Country, New Road. So just one more quick thing to share with you today. I stumbled on a very good single-purpose website the other day called Sublime Text. It's a text editor site made by founding Twitter engineer Blaine Cook, and when you type in the box, it plays What I Got by Sublime. If you stop typing for a couple of seconds, the song pauses, start typing again, and it starts back up. It's not at all practical, because as soon as you start jamming to the song, you kind of forget what you were typing, if you had a point of what you were typing anyways. Maybe if you're, like, transcribing some handwritten notes so you've got a purpose and can keep a constant flow, it would be good, but, you know, mostly it's just funny. And Cook said on Twitter last week that the site actually had a higher Google rank than the band Sublime. I love when jokes and fan creations briefly exceed the popularity of the thing that they're based on. Anyways, link to Sublime Text is in the show notes if you want to try it out, but that's all I've got. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.